Good morning, buenas tardes, whatever time or wherever you may be when you're listening to this. Welcome and thank you for being here on this momentous occasion. I'm here to bring you people from various backgrounds, authors, actors, educators, athletes, politicians, and many more. People that I think are interesting and hope you will too. Today we have a special guest to kick things off on our new podcasting journey. He's the co-host of Literary Disco on Lit Hub Radio and on Open Book on KCOD Coachella FM, where I just so happen to work. Someone who brings the suspense to the palms of your hands with titles such as Gangsterland, Gangster Nation, and his newest release, The Low Desert, which I'm very excited to talk about. A New York Times bestseller, educator, podcaster, next door enthusiast, and Jane's Addiction connoisseur, my friend, Todd Goldberg. Sit back, relax, or listen while you're on your morning jog. I'm Alex Atarain, and this is episode one of Candidly Human. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Candidly Human. I am your host, Alex Atarain. Super excited to be here with all of you. I have to say, it's been awesome to just see the lead up to this, and just all the support that I did not expect, it was uh, amazing. It was amazing to say the least. First and foremost, I do have to thank my wife, Leslie, who supported me in doing this and helped me with the, I mean, everything, everything, everything that came down to the name of the show, uh, just the creation of it, writing down the concept, everything. She gave me a lot of advice and we worked together on this. Also have to thank Alfonso Olachea who made our awesome theme music and some of the other jingles that you'll hear on the show and Laura Catalina. Laura Catalina was the one that made our logo, some of our other artwork and make sure you check her out at lauracatalina.com. She is a fantastic artist. You'll see all her samples on there. So I appreciate the support from them to get this off the ground. And a little bit about myself. I was born in Tijuana, Mexico, but I've spent most of my life in Indio, California, where I was raised. I eventually went ahead and graduated from Coachella Valley High School and attended College of the Desert, a local community college. And once I finished there, I went over to UC San Diego, where I graduated with my degree in history. When I came back, I had no idea what I was doing. I was already having an existential crisis in my early 20s. I went back to community college, got involved with KCOD, the college radio station, and it was all uphill from there. I got a job with the college. I work as their media lab technician, and it's it's so much fun. I get to work with all of their media programs, and more, more specifically, the college radio station. So that's part of my day-to-day work. So I'm very grateful for that, and it eventually grew to where now I teach radio production, intermediate and advanced, to be specific, because... In that time while I was working at the college, I did get jobs in radio. So I balanced all of that. Also, uh, getting married. Uh, Obviously, I mentioned my wife, Leslie, a little bit earlier. So kept myself very, very busy and had some of the most important uh, moments in my life. I did get my MBA from Grand Canyon University. I finished that in December 2019. And now I've been on Twitch. I've been doing all this fun stuff because I had to go ahead and try something different with being home over the last year. So this is kind of this uh, last step, a big lead up to what I've been wanting to do for so long. And Candidly Human has been a 
great project to start working on over the last few months. And I have to thank Ken Vincent, who has been a mentor to me and did so much in letting me kind of flesh this idea out. So a big shout out to Ken, who has been a huge help to our guest. Todd Goldberg is the director of the Low Residency MFA program in creative writing and writing for the performing arts at UC Riverside. He's also a host of two podcasts, one being Open Book on KCOD Coachella FM, and he does that with essayist Maggie Downs, and that's actually where I met both of them. And he also does Literary Disco for Lit Hub Radio, and he does that one with Julia Pistel and Ryder Strong. Todd has been a good friend. He's been somebody else who has helped me out in fleshing out this idea, and he's been a very positive resource. So having him on for this first episode is very special. So without further ado, let's get candid with Todd Goldberg. What's up, Todd? How's it going? Today's a pretty good day. I woke up. It's always a good thing. I, uh, I had some oatmeal. I'm not sick, and I'm three days away from getting my second vaccination shot, which means I'm going to have kick-ass 5G in four days. <laughs> <laughs> and I was actually about to ask you, like, if you had already gotten your second dose, I, I know that you had gotten your first already. So uh, I guess we have to start asking, which one are you, have you been getting? Uh, I got the Pfizer. Um, so I got my first dose a couple weeks ago. I get the second one in a couple of days. By the time folks are listening to this, I'll have full 5G. I'll have telekinesis. And Bill Gates will be tracking my every movement. I can't wait. It's what I've, it's what I've always wanted. It's bold of you to assume that he's not already tracking you after the first one. <laughs> or through my phone, for that matter. I, I, I know, I know. But... <laughs> no, I'm excited. You know, after I, after I get my shot, I'm just going to go around the neighborhood looking doorknobs. <laughs> well, I'm sure you're going to hear about it on Nextdoor. I, I know that's your favorite social media site next to Twitter. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> So I, I do have to ask because you're a crime novelist and so as, as little as I've read so far, right? And, and I, I, I've got to say, I'll, I'll get more into details about why it's been so important for me to read this. Mm-hmm. But I have to ask because obviously you have to have some sort of dubious way of thinking to be able to write these crime novels. <laughs> have you ever farted and blamed someone else for it? Oh, for sure. Well, okay. Yeah. So, so give me so, some examples. Well, I mean, you got to put this in context. I was in a fraternity. <laughs> okay, so this is a good start. <laughs> so there was all that. You know, so the four years or five years, actually, I should I should be honest, the five years I spent in college. So invariably, if you live in a fraternity house with, you know, 10 other dudes, you're going to blame that on somebody else for sure. I'm also the youngest of four children. So... <laughs> You know, there's there's plenty of ample opportunity for it. Um, but I had a rich history when I was a kid of committing small felonies larger than the one of, of emitting gas from my body and blaming someone else and and sticking the crime on uh, on somebody else. There was there was one time, Alex, this is um, I was this is when I was still living in Walnut Creek. So in Northern California, and I used to like to go outside and uh, throw a tennis ball off of the garage door. And I would do that for hours, which must have been super annoying for anyone that was inside of the house. (laughs) And there was one time I missed the garage and I just threw the ball through this um, like plastic um, address number thing that was on our our house, Mm. basically. 
and I shattered it. So I, I was like, well, I'm going inside. I'm going to pretend that didn't happen. And the, I shattered it, and the, the hole was the exact circumference of a tennis ball. <laughs> so I go inside, and I don't say anything about it. And my mom comes home from work, you know, that evening. And my mom was a journalist. So she had some ability to sort of ask questions and find answers. <laughs> she was like, what happened to the address light? And I was like, it was like that when I got home from school. And she's like, wait a minute. You're telling me you didn't break it? That it was like that when you got home from school? When it's you're out there every day throwing the ball and it's the exact circumference of a tennis ball? I was like, I didn't do it. I think it was the neighbor. I think it was Mike Shag. I saw him playing outside. And my mom was like, you're an idiot. Like, you just admit that you broke it. And I would not admit it. I just kept blaming it on the neighbor. And it, it got to be this thing where my mom was like, how will I ever trust what you say again? And I was like, well, mom, you're out of luck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, I, I think all of us have in one way or another done that. It's like, it's obviously us, but it's like, nah, I'm pretty sure it was like that before I came around. <laughs> right, I, exactly. I'm, yeah, so I, I think you're pretty normal in that sense where we're, we're all a little bit of a compulsive liars, right? Right. <laughs> it happens. It happens. We're kids. We live and learn. And some of us learn a little bit later than others. Or, you know, just at home, you know, for the last year, no one else has entered our house, but but me or my wife or our dog. And my wife, Wendy, will say something like, did you leave this knife on the counter? And I'll say, no. <laughs> it was definitely the dog. <laughs> the dog became bipedal and also <laughs> grew a thumb. And is making a ton of bagels. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you my fart story. Okay. There's this uh, t uh taco stand in Tijuana, Mexico, that whenever we would go down, my parents would always take us there. And right before we got out of the car, I just let one rip. Right, I let one rip, and I'm there with my <laughs> two sisters, both of them younger than than myself, and I blame it on the youngest one. So I blame her on the youngest one, and my parents, my parents didn't believe her. Please, she's like, it wasn't me, it was him, it wasn't me, and they did not believe her. I apparently I sold it. Apparently, I'm just that good of an asshole where they just bought. Basically, it. CIA is what you are. <laughs> I mean, look, look. If I have those skills, there's nothing I can't do, right? Like I'm, right. I'm here pretending to be a podcaster. You, you, you agreed to be on here, so I guess I'm doing it right. Uh, so. For years, I would whisper over to my sister and be like, hey, I farted that time and nobody's ever going to believe you. <laughs> and for years, I had to have been like 12, 13 when this happened. And she, I've got five years on her. So she was she was little. She was eight years old. And she was, you know, crying and whatnot. And each time for years, I, even to like early adulthood. And I mean, I, I'm 28, but I'm talking like early 20s. I would still like look at her and be like, remember that one time I farted and I blamed it on you? <laughs> Just it wasn't until like, maybe like three or four years ago when we told my parents about that and my mom was like wow you you idiot <laughs> but it was just like a really good like inside joke between my sister and i and it's right. like yeah you know it kind of sucked for her because they they didn't believe a word she, she said until i actually came out a decade later you know? <laughs> i mean of all the secrets to hold for that long <laughs> of all of them you know of all of them if, if it came down to something like really really bad i probably would not have been able to hold it that long you but see this is the thing this is the thing about criminals this is what you need to know 
It's the getting away with it that's the problem. They're happy to do the crime. It's hard for them to stay quiet about it. It's the getting away with it that they got to talk about. And that's what eventually did you in. It, eventually, it, I evolved as a person. <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, look, it, I, I, I think that I've, I had a sense of uh, morality, and I, I had to come out clean. All right. And fair enough. Fair fair enough. enough. And and you know, the statute of limitations had already passed. So (laughs) I I was good. I was good. There was no way I was gonna get in trouble for it at like twenty two, twenty three years old. Right. So it was it was it was fine. And you mentioned that and that's perfect because I just finished Gangsterland. Uh in one of your novels, obviously. It is indeed, yes. It it is. And it's this story, uh a hitman from Chicago, Sal Cooperteen. Gets uh, into this little scuffle, right, in, in a <laughs> hotel, and doesn't realize that these guys are, you know, with the government. When he goes back down to the hotel lobby and tries to find the information, finds that out, had a lapse in judgment because he's usually very clean with what he does, and this gets him into so much trouble that now he has to go ahead and go from Chicago hitman to Las Vegas rabbi. Right. So. <laughs> it's this whole thing where he had to keep all this to himself and create this whole life. And I mentioned this evolution of myself, but this, this evolution that he had, right? Like he was still Sal, but he was Rabbi uh, Cohen. Right. So now you get this guy who, of course he had his family back in Chicago. He had a, a wife and a son, a young son, and he kept everything separate. Like he did, he did a pretty good job keeping everything separate, his family life and work life. So when he left his work, he had some meaning in life. Whenever he had to do a job, it was just kind of like, I'm going to go off a guy and boom, call it a day. Like he, he yeah. felt no remorse. Right. It's just a way to pay the light bill. Right. He did have work with what you mentioned, the family. Right. And he had little side gigs. So it was just a normal day in the office for him. So he, he has this lapse in judgment, goes to Vegas, has this evolution where he starts, uh, you know, Obviously, as a rabbi, he has to be able to know a little bit about Judaism, right? Like he a little has, bit, yes. He has to know a little bit. And so he spends these, what, nine months kind of learning and becoming somebody much different. He obviously picks up like a lot of different lines that allow him to kind of skate through it. But you could still see like this growth in, in morality and different ways of thinking. But then right. also he reverts back to sell. And as I was reading this book, you get from the get-go, it was just murder, murder, murder. And then <laughs> it's actually it's murder, 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 Jew, 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 murder, 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 Jew, Jew, murder, Jew. True. <laughs> true. And when I did not expect the ending, which I think was good because it did, it meant that it wasn't predictable. Right. And Hopefully. I was also going to mention too, the the reason why I found it so important to be able to read this is because I haven't been able to sit down and enjoy a book in years. Like, Really? Why I mean, not? I'm, well, it just, I'm a little bit lazy. I'm a little bit lazy. <laughs> well, there's nothing, there's nothing active about reading other than sitting. And reading, that's pretty active. Well, I mean, that's just moving your eyes and being engaged mentally. That, I mean, I'm, it would I'm, seem to me that if, if you're a lazy person, sitting and reading a book is the perfect use of your time. Just thinking about it has already got me tired. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm 
I'm just not. I okay. Maybe it's you know us millennials have this short attention span. Right. So I think that's part of it. Right. I'm, I'm going. I'm going to blame it on that. I'm not. I'm not All going right. to blame it just because I'm lazy. Um, but <laughs> I, I have. I've had this trouble in getting through books. Mm-hmm. And I had actually bought a book right before I bought Gangsterland, and I'm not going to say which one it is. I'm not going to say. And as I started reading it, I was just. It felt like a chore. Right. It felt like this chore where I'm just like, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this to myself? This isn't enjoyable at all. So then I got this. I got this. And it was really funny because I had been chatting with you telling you like, oh, or I I had asked like, what's the best way to go ahead and order the book? And then I had received it. And I go check my mailbox. (laughs) I go check my mailbox and I pull out the sleeve. It was an Amazon package. I pull, pull out the sleeve. And it's light as a feather. I'm like, huh, this is weird. I didn't expect, you know, a 400-page book to be this light. (laughs) So I realized that at the other end, the package is open like it wasn't sealed. So living up to gangsters and and petty crime, I was out of a book. Someone thought that they were getting, like, a video game or something. And then... They slice through your mail only to find a 400-page crime novel about a hitman rabbi. And they're like, ah, oh, God, <laughs> this isn't what I, I can't sell this. I can't play with this. I have to read this. I don't want this crap. Yeah. But you're now responsible for two sales for me and not just one. So you, you've you helped the bottom line of, of Goldberg Incorporated. <laughs> well, actually, the bad news for you is that Amazon actually sent me another one. Ah. <sighs> So I, someone's I would, paying for it. <laughs> yeah, so I would I would tell Amazon like, hey, like, where's my money? You know, you might you might have to pull out your inner cell and just <laughs> do the deed. And just again, reading this was kind of a a breath of fresh air for me because again, like, I've had such a difficult time trying to get into something, and this ended up becoming a big page turner for me. I got to the point where like now because I haven't been able to read consistently, I can sit down and read. 80 pages quick. Right. So thank you for that. Thank you for that. That's actually. Well, but So here's the question though. Was it easier for you to read it because you know me? And so therefore you're reading it and you're like, oh, that sounds like this person that I know. Or was it just so goddamn good that you could not stop reading it? The answer is yes. No, it, it, it was enjoyable because, uh, of course, for one, you're, you're going to have a little bit of bias going into it, right? Like, right. I know Todd. He's a cool dude. I think I, I could tell, like, this is you, right? Right. There is a lot of me in there. I mean, not that I'm not that I'm my own characters and not that anything in the book is true, of course. But, you know, I think that book in particular, um, and, you know, it, it's funny. Whenever I have a new book come out, of course, I end up talking about my old books, too. But, you know, I wrote Gangsterland. I started to write Gangsterland in 2011, I think. And I finished writing it in 2012 or 2013, somewhere in there. And then it came out at the end of 2014. So in my mind, like I, I wrote this book now almost a decade ago. Mm-hmm. And so going back and revisiting it is sort of fun because I kind of remember it and I kind of don't. <laughs> and then... 
I wrote the sequel and then I wrote the new book, um, The Low Desert. And so these characters are in my mind all the time, but I don't always remember exactly everything that has happened to them until I start talking about it with someone like yourself who's reading for the first time. Um, and the thing is, is that the, the part of me that is in that book is the part of Sal that has to become the rabbi. I, I was not, I'm not a great Jew. You know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a put mayonnaise on bacon Jew. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, I'm a beastie boys Jew. And um, in order to write about a guy becoming a rabbi, successfully pretending to be a rabbi, I had to read all the books that, that he's read. And so while he was becoming Jewish, in fact, I was, I was too. Um, and, and so now, you know, 10 years on, you know, I've read all the holy books. I, I, I'm much more in tune with my own faith. Not that I'm a religious person necessarily, but uh, probably more spiritual because of the experience that I've had reading all these books. And, and it's impossible to read all this stuff if you're a Jew and not be moved by it because it is, in fact, a story of persecution. And once you realize how lucky you are to be somewhere, that, that most of the people in my family tree um, died, you know, in service of something that was born inside of us, um, you begin to have a, a lot more appreciation for, um, for the simple things in life. Yeah, I, I did listen to uh, Literary Disco, which is one of the podcasts that you, you co-host with uh, Writer Strong and uh, Julia Pistel, which I actually mm -hmm. just started listening to in the last few months. And I just kind of came out and, and told you that I don't read all that often. But I think what was really great about Literary Disco is that it's very lighthearted. Mm -hmm. And there's still analysis of, of uh, literature and all that. But it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. And I did listen to the one about The Low Desert, which is your newest release. I did hear that you had to go ahead and study. Yeah. Imagine imagine not being able to get through a book and then having to read all the Jew books. <laughs> <laughs> well, how long did that take you? Oh, God, it took me a really long time. I mean, I'm we're recording this on Zoom, so Alice can kind of see it. There's a bookshelf over here that all these books right over here are all these sort of holy books I had to read. Wow. And I read them sort of at the same time that I was writing, but I also read them when I needed them. So I had to sort of mimic the um, the education of this character. And so when I needed something, I would go read it. Um, so it's a it's an it's an unending process, also, because um, there's so much stuff that's out there, and you can't read every single word of the midrash. Like you you'd have to throw yourself off a building. Um, if you did that, but you can read all the Talmud, you can read the Torah, obviously, and, and you can read these books on Jewish eschatology and, and, you know, the joys of Yiddish or whatever. Um, but, you know, it's a continuing education in order to write about this person, not to repeat myself at the same time. Right. And obviously for me, like, I, I'd be pretty lost if I didn't know some of the words. And, and I do think that you give, I, I suppose, uh, brief descriptions of what they meant right like just to kind of right. let the reader assuming that most of us aren't uh, jewish a, a little bit of a insight as to what sal cooperteen was learning and now as rabbi david cohen right. and there were a few parts in in it that were really good and that really resonated with me and and one that really said that said to me this is definitely todd <laughs> and there's this one there's this one paragraph and it, it's pronounced 
Talmud? Talmud? Yeah, Talmud. Talmud. Okay, so the Talmud taught that Jews live in deeds, not years. And in that way, David understood the paradox of all the things he'd learned during these months of rabbinical study. You could never quite unfuck yourself (laughs) when it got right down to it. But that didn't mean you couldn't be a better person after making a bad choice. So I think that one, when I read that one, I'm like, that that stuck with me. That really, really stuck with me. Yeah, that that is a uniquely Todd line. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it's it's funny. I remember writing it. Um, I actually remember deciding to to use the term unfuck yourself. <laughs> um, and I do that periodically. You know, you you make up words essentially out of words that already exist uh, because they sound funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but also to to boil down sort of a, a complex theology into the way a gangster would think about it. Like you can read the Talmud. And realize there's all this stuff, but the end result is you can't really unfuck yourself. <laughs> and, and that's like, that's, that's, I mean, that's, that's the basis of a lot of sort of Western faith, <laughs> you know? Um, but the thing about Jews is that you might not be able to unfuck yourself, but we're big on atonement. Um, and so you can be forgiven um, even if you um, are never correct. <laughs> You know, as long as you admit that you're wrong, you can be forgiven. And I think that theme actually stuck around a lot in this book. Um, it did come up a, a few times where, uh, again, it, it and it's really interesting for a guy like Sal who did so many horrible things, but still somehow he was going to be forgiven. And at the end, he's the last man standing somehow, some way. He's the last one there and he's the one, he's now the big guy and Basically, you know, a little bit of a spoiler, but the, the, the book's been out for, for a good minute. Um, yeah, <laughs> been there for a while. For a while. There's sequels, so you know he lives. Yeah, so I, I don't feel so bad talking about it. When he killed uh, the agent, mm-hmm. I did not expect that because it was kind of like this tension. It was a t- this tension where they're kind of just looking at each other and having this conversation because you think D- uh, David Cohen or, or Sal is kind of getting away. You know, you're, he's having this conversation with the agent and you're like, okay. This looks like it's going to end. They just go separate ways, and the agent never finds Sal. He catches on. The agent catches on. Like you're not answering any of my questions. Right. You're just. You're. You're just. He's answering questions with a question, which is which what, is a tenet of the Jewish faith. And, and that's what uh, Rabbi Kales, who <laughs> yes. was the head rabbi there, um, taught him. Right? right. And he gets to the point where it's like obviously now Sal or or the rabbi, whichever way you want to call him kills the agent and that i did not expect like i felt the tension and Mm -hmm. i felt the tension rise i didn't expect him to just go for it right (laughs) like it just stab him and the agent was somewhat redeemed because at this point like he was already uh he was on on leave Mm -hmm. he took this upon his own hands because he felt guilty for the agents that died due to uh, Sal's uh, realization there at the hotel, which is what ended up with Sal being in Vegas as a rabbi. But it came down to fulfillment for the agent. Like, I actually found you. Right. Yeah, I mean, everyone everyone there, in a way, gets their happy ending. Um, but it's an ending. You know, that last scene between the two of them. So um, if you've read the book, uh, listeners, this is not a surprise. If you haven't read the book, listeners, now would be a good time to pause, 
maybe put on ESPN for a minute, see if the Warriors won. They're 500 as of today. They're in the number nine spot in the West. I don't think they're going to make it. Um, but that final scene, it took me a long time to write it because I didn't know what point of view to write it from, either the agent's point of view or the hitman's point of view. Um, because the go- the book goes back and forth between the, the two of them. The agent is a, an agent named Agent Hopper. Um, but in that last scene between the two of them, you the, the job of the writer is to fulfill the needs of the reader. And the needs of the reader there is to have a satisfying ending for both of those characters. And so if Hopper doesn't realize that he's found the man he spent 450 pages looking for and dies in vain... Um, it's dissatisfying, even though he's become the villain to you. Um, He shouldn't be the villain because he's the good guy, uh, but he's become the villain. And so you want him to catch him and you want him to realize that he's done it. And then when he dies and he says, I found you, um, he says, I found you. I think he says it a couple of times. It's oddly satisfying, hopefully for the reader. Uh, But then at that very same point, Rabbi David Cohen disappears and the hitman Sal Cupertine reappears on the page and you realize you found him all right. You, you got him <laughs> and, and he's not gonna let you go. Um, and to write that requires um, some understanding of how the reader is going to read it and, and understanding how to change the voice so that this guy who's been this rabbi this entire time switches personalities again and becomes the hitman. Um, but does it in a way that makes the reader excited about it. Like you want the hitman there, you want him there. Um, and so I spent, I don't know, a month on that scene. It was a really hard scene to write and to, and to get the emotions correct. It got me. Cause again, I, I did not expect it. That whole sequence of agent Hopper finding him, him being murdered. And then also Sal or David, then figuring out, okay, I want to st- keep this life here even though throughout the whole book it was about him going back to chicago and finding a way to be with his family again but now because he's the main guy on top he's like hmm this doesn't seem like a bad deal at all obviously like now it's it's about him trying to get his wife and and son down to summerlin they're they're in vegas which is a a uh, community in vegas i do think that it it felt satisfying finishing it because again like everybody gets their ending Right. Even though it may not be totally happy, but there was fulfillment. <laughs> right. And exactly. And well, a cliffhanger. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because it ends with the money showing up to uh, Jennifer, uh, Sal's wife, a big wad or several wads of cash. Now you're just like, okay, what, what happens next? And I, I don't quite know what happens next. I'm not there yet. <laughs> well, you're lucky there's another book. Yeah, I, I'm not there yet. So that... <laughs> <laughs> what was great that you just mentioned too is that you you spoke about how you wanted to write the book in which lens and yeah each ch- each few chapters actually bounces back and forth between uh Sal and uh Agent Hopper. And so I started reading The Low Desert, your newest one, and just a quick story about how I got my hands on it. You posted <laughs> on Twitter uh that you had a few signed copies at the local Barnes and Noble. And I live right down the street from the mall. Like, I could walk there in maybe 10 or 15 minutes. On this specific day, I was thinking to myself, this jerk does it when I'm actually not home. I'm, I'm actually out in India, which is still not far. But when you've lived here in the desert long enough, driving from the East Valley to Central is like pain. 
you gotta you gotta pack a lunch. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's it's a trek. You're just not having it. And for those of you who don't live in the Coachella Valley, we're talking about a trip that could take upwards of twelve minutes. Yeah, we we we, <laughs> we complain so much. And I actually got to live in in San Diego for a few years doing my undergrad. A half hour drive didn't seem so bad. Right. And, and even like an hour, you're like, okay, I, I can do that, right? Because that you're going a, across town. Yeah, you could drive up to Solana Beach for for dinner on a date. Then you come back. Well, an hour is nothing. Yeah, and then you're here in the Coachella Valley, and you're like, oh, 5 o'clock. My 12-minute drive is 15 minutes now. Oh, my goodness, I'm going to lose it. <laughs> so it's it's definitely a different way of thinking. And yes. it's like, for me, it's like a, a, a switch. Like San Diego, an hour was fine. And over here, 15 minutes, I'm like, God damn it. You know, I, but that's besides the point. I'm going to stop complaining. <laughs> uh, but I had, I was in Indio. And then later in the day, I made my way back to the mall because my parents actually needed to go buy some stuff. And I figured, oh, I'll join them. I live right down the street. That's fine. We go over to the mall and I go over to Barnes and Noble. I, I'm just, it must have been at least an hour since you had left. So I figured I'd take a, a crack at it and see if, if I could find it. And I started looking around the bookstore, and I couldn't find your book. I was just looking, and I'm like, oh, I should probably ask a worker because they would actually know. I'm, I'm just an idiot walking around trying to find something where I have no idea where it is. So I go over to the help desk, and I told him, oh, well, I'm, I'm looking for this book, The Low Desert by Todd Goldberg. And he's like, oh, he was actually here a little bit earlier. And, and, and I remember messaging you and... and you, you told me like he was probably a little bit dubious about who you really were. I'm like, no, like I, I, that's him. That, that's actually really him. <laughs> it was actually hidden like at the very top of one of the shelves. And like, I, the... <laughs> I would have never like, you know, the big shelves on the wall, like they're huge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was like on top of there. Like I would but never. They didn't, they didn't just put them back in fiction. <laughs> no, it, it was just, it was, I, I couldn't believe it. Like, I would have never found it if I tried looking by myself. Right. So this very kind, very, very kind uh, Barnes & Noble worker. I wish I, I had his name, but I don't. But thank you. Thank you, good sir. But I did. Thank I, you I, for I, hiding my book, good sir. <laughs> true. But at least he kept it for safekeeping for me. Right. Right. So, Signed copies for safekeeping. Yep. So I found it. I got it. Sent you a picture. And that's when you told me that he was probably dubious of who you were. But I, I assured you that... I let him know that you were very much a real person and not just some weirdo coming off of the street from like Highway 111 or India Boulevard. I typically, I typically go in there and sign Stephen King books. So I, they were probably surprised to see me asking for my own books. Talking about impersonation, and this was something I wanted to bring up. So you also do another podcast called Open Book on KCOD, which is how we actually met each other. And, and you were nominated for Best Show by a Community Volunteer. Super awesome. And there was one day we went into work, obviously pre-pandemic, and I'm there listening to you guys. I could hear you guys down the hall recording your show. You guys come out, and I, I tend to come out of my little space and say, what's up to you guys? And bo both you and Maggie Downs. You come out with your guests, and I introduce myself. And he's like, hi, I'm John Grisham. And I'm like, I'm like, okay. I thought to myself, okay, maybe this is, but also I know what John Grisham looks like. And you're not him. And it ends up it was your brother, Lee Goldberg, who's right. also in, an author and a TV producer. And I was just sitting there for like a few minutes. I'm like, what just happened? 
<laughs> Us Goldbergs are inveterate liars. <laughs> and, and this goes back to, you know, the tennis ball, right? right. It, it goes That's way correct. back and it's it's genetic apparently. So yes. no, but we're we're all a little bit of, of liars. And and the point was that I started reading The Low Desert and just perspective of the what what you were writing and in what perspective you're writing it in. So you start off with the first short, short story. So if you're not familiar with this book, The Low Desert, again, Todd's latest book, it's all short stories. All short stories. And I started reading The, the Royal Californian, which, of course, is kind of a narration, right? But then I, I go over to the next story, and it was uh, The Low Desert, and you go to first person. Mm -hmm. What made you decide between how you went from, you know, the third person over to first person? Well, um, oftentimes content dictates the form um, in short fiction uh, and in really anything, you know, um, a third person story, which the Royal Californian is, um, you know, you're going to have a little bit more authorial distance um, you know, you're you're going to tell the story from a slight bit of remove, and that's good for a sort of a comic noir story, which the Royal Californian's about. That story is about a, a karaoke singer whose car breaks down um, in Indio, and he's got his business partner's head in a bag in the trunk, <laughs> and he uh, he has to go spend the night in a hotel where he encounters a lawyer and a clown. Um, so that story sort of lends itself more closely to a, a third person story. First person, you know, for a story that's about nostalgia in a way. And, and so The Low Desert is a story that takes place at the Salton Sea in 1962. And it's told from a remove of several years. You don't know when it's being told from, but you know that what has happened in the story has already happened. Um, first person is a nice way to tell that story um, because it, it, allows you to color it with a bit more poetry. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, I'm filtering that story through the memories of this man, Morris Drew, um, a character I've written about several times over the course of the last 25 years or so. Um, and so, you know, you, you make these choices as a writer really before you ever sit down to start writing. Um, you know, the, the story shows up in my mind, either in first person or third person most of the time. Like, I know what I'm going to do. So, for instance, last night I was working on a new story and I knew it, I knew before I wrote the first words that it was going to be first person because the opening line showed up in my head. And the opening line for that was this was the 1980s, back when robbing a bank still made sense. And my sister was dating a man named Hank Nicondros. And like that sentence was there, fully formed in my head. And I was like, okay, well, that's a first person story about a bank robber. Same with um, The Low Desert. You know, The Low Desert, I knew that it was going to open with a guy named Jim Connolly busting into Morris Drew's house and the story would go on from there. Um, but these are, you know, this is sort of the magic of writing. Like this is the, this is the muse showing up uh, is, that, is that choice we make. Um, but, you know, I, when I was younger, I really only wrote in first person. And then over the course of the last many, many years, third person has been my preferred voice because you can you can attack a story from a lot of different ways in third person. You can have multiple points of view. You can do all sorts of stuff. 
first person is is very limited and, and biased and allows you to be an unreliable narrator, which third person does not. Yeah, and I'm I'm actually only three short stories in. So, I mean, even for that, you like a lot of bad stuff to happen yet, a, a lot of stuff, but there's a lot of good variation in between the stories. I mean, all of them have crime, at, you know, out to some extent. Right. And obviously, well, I mean, not even to some extent, it's just different extents. Right. And yes, they all they right. all have death. It's just the different a perspectives, bit, yeah. <laughs> the different perspectives of um, where they're sitting from. Right. Like so. So you're talking about. um our quote unquote protagonist in the Royal Californian actually committed murder. And yes. And then, <laughs> yeah. And then you go to the next short story that we were just talking about in the low desert. And it's about finding a body and this, uh, head of security trying to get to the bottom of it. Correct. And realizes that once he got a little bit into the rabbit hole, that everything was really fucked. Yeah, but the other thing about the Low Desert, the main character in there, is you also find out that he was a rifleman in Korea, where the standard, I mean, people forget about the Korean War. It was the bloodiest conflict we really have ever been in because the standard operating procedure was to kill everybody. Mm -hmm. Everybody. Men, women, and children. It didn't matter. Kill everybody. Um, and so when you come back from a war like that, you're not the same person that you were when you left. And so while he's the law, essentially, he also is intimate with violence and death. Right. And it's he's been around it, and it's it, there are points in the story where he's like, nothing phases me. Like, right. I've seen stuff. And right. you get to the point, because now he's, at the end, he's sitting with Jim, who's the one that broke into his, his front door that first day, or that first moment in the story. And Jim's not like that. that like, he's like the polar opposite, and he's like, just stop digging in. Right. And he starts crying because now, you know, he's finding out stuff that he doesn't want to, and he doesn't want to be put into danger because now they're, they're finding out that this is way deeper than just, you know, some kid who was found right. dead. Like it's way, way deeper. So um, then going into Palm Springs, which is as far as I've made it so far, it's this, uh, Almost middle-aged woman. I would we say you know forties would be middle-aged. Yeah, Forty. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm just trying to figure it out because now it's like forties, <laughs> the new thirty, and and fifties. But know. you still only live to eighty. <laughs> I mean that's that's true. That's true. So so middle-aged, and so about her growth as from a young woman to where she is now, and the adoption of a teenage girl from Russia, and how one day she wasn't there, and and then the girl left. Right. So right. it's like this whole thing where she runs into money and figures uh, I'll use that money to pay it forward. And it all kind of unravels from there. And, you know, she had made a life in, in Reno and all that good stuff. And then she finds out or, or she ends up in, in Palm Springs. Right. right? And, and working at one of the casinos that we're very much uh, accustomed to out here. Right. We have. Yeah, I, I I gave her a fake version of the spa casino that she's working in. Oh, uh, that that I knew, and and it was awesome when I was actually reading um the Royal Californian, and you started naming off the streets in La Quinta and Indio. You know, you started talking about all the presidents. So you have uh right. Jefferson, 
Washington, Monroe, Madison, and I'm like, I know all those places. I, I can relate to this, which made it a lot of fun so far to, well, to read. Alex, wait till you get to the short story about the hitman who gets a job at a college radio station. You're about 30 pages from that one. Are you serious? Yeah, goon number four. <laughs> wow. You're going to want to read that one. Is that about me? I'm, 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 I'm just going to ask because I'm... You might find something familiar in there. That's all I'm gonna say. Oh my goodness! I'm gonna I'm gonna have to. Uh, you're giving me like a much reason to just end this right now and just start reading. <laughs> if I were you, when we're done talking, you should read Goon Number Four. That is part of the plan. That is now part of the plan. And there was this other line here in uh, Palm Springs, and. I, I'm actually trying to... Okay, so it's, how did she end up in Palm Springs? She asked herself this question repeatedly, and the answer was always the same. It wasn't Las Vegas. Usually, he's at Suffice, right. but tonight, sitting across from Gordon, who was uh, one of her co-workers, his face getting younger with every passing moment until she's certain he's no more than 32, unless what's happened is that each, with, <laughs> with each drink, she's tacked on another month to her life, or that she's now pushing every uh, pushing 70. She knows that she ended up in Palm Springs because it was the only place where she had no memories, no connections, nothing to remind her of everything lost, but where the world itself was essentially the same. So, again, at this point, she had already left Nevada. She no longer had her adopted daughter, and she's there in Palm Springs working at a casino. And what when I read that, the first thing that came to mind is the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah, you know, there's there's something about the sort of itinerant lifestyle of folks who work in resorts um, and people who work in casinos and cocktail waitresses and bartenders. You know, there's there's a it's a different reality because it can be the same thing over and over again, no matter what city you live in. You're in a closed space and you're doing that thing. And as you know, but maybe some of the listeners don't, you know, when you live in a resort town, there's a there's a seediness, you know, there's an underbelly to it. And um, there's this feeling that the tourists always feel like, oh my God, this is so great. Everyone's so nice to me here. I just love it here. What a, it's so pleasant. And then the reality is all the people that are being nice to you hate you and want you to leave. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? You're not wrong. I, like, I'm not wrong. <laughs> you're not wrong because I, I, I know like I'm, I'm a Coachella Valley native and you're you're pretty much a native yourself, you know. I, I know you were uh, raised for the most part up in Walnut Creek, up in NorCal right. Bay Area. Look, you're an A's fan. If you were from down here, no self-respecting Southern Californian would go ahead and be an A's fan. But then again, wow. I'm a Padres wow, fan. Wow, so... dark. Get <laughs> <Like a> dark. <laughs> so, How dare you? I, at least I'm a fan of a team that wins. I, I, um. mean, I mean, look, 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 look. I, I guess that's fair. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, well, I moved here when I was in eighth grade, but I've been coming here my entire life. My my grandparents um, had houses here since the 1950s because it was the only place where Jews could golf. And so my grandparents lived up in uh, Walla Walla, Washington, and Portland and Longview, uh, which are very close to each other. And so they had um, they had winter homes here at uh, at Canyon Country Club and at the Villa Aleo on the corner of Aleo and, and India and the big apartment complexes there. Um, it's been there since the 50s. Um, so my entire life I've spent, I spent time in the desert. And when I moved here in eighth grade, 
my mom had just been hired to be the society columnist for the Desert Sun. Um, and so while it was strange to move, of course, moving always sucks, right? At least it was a place I was familiar with. Um, but I also, you know, as a kid worked in all the hotels. So I worked as a pool guy, um, you know, as a, as a cabana boy at all of the hotels in, in Palm Springs, so at the Riviera, at the spa, at the Marquis, which is long gone, um, at the Wyndham, when it was the Maxim. Um, so I worked at all these different places. And I worked for a series of criminals who sold suntan lotion <laughs> and, and, you know, did petty crimes at all these hotels. And so I remember really well what it was like in that little, in that underbelly. And so I've, I've always liked to write about it. But the character in Palm Springs itself, Tanya, um, she reoccurs in this book. She shows up again in another story called Pilgrims. And then you find out later in the book what actually happened to her daughter who has disappeared. Um, and, you know, what I'm doing in, in all these cases is, you know, I'm, I'm dropping a little pebble into the water and, and I'm seeing how the, the ripples reach the shore. So all these stories are connected in some way. Even the story about the salt and sea connects to um, Tanya's story. Um, so there's, there, there might not seem to be a crime in, in the short story, Palm Springs, but Tanya's mere existence is the result of a crime. Now that I've gotten to know a little bit more about the stories, it's all interconnected, which has been kind of really right. nice to see. And once I started reading about um, the Royal Californian and you you see the lawyer Kales, and it's like, mm -hmm. I know that last name. Right. I, I know where this ties in. His cousin was a rabbi. Hmm, I wonder where that's from. It's from Gangster Lab. So it, yeah. it's, I don't know if you've seen that meme of, um, it's Leo, Di Leo DiCaprio um, uh, from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And it's him point, like drinking a beer and pointing yes. at the TV. Yes. That's yes. like me. <laughs> like whenever I read something like that and I'm like, I know what this is. I know what's going on. Uh, so yeah, the tie in between the stories makes you kind of reminisce and go back to the other ones. You're like, Oh, like this is really crazy. And yeah. And you know, I, I wrote the stories so that they could stand alone, of course, um, and be evergreen, but I also wrote them so that if you've read gangster land and gangster nation, that it fills out the story even more. So there's characters that are minor characters in both of those books who show up and here, are people that die that show back up in this book. So for instance, you're going to get to see dead agent Hopper uh, at some point in your reading time as well. He oh. comes back to life, the, the zombie agent Hopper. <laughs> <laughs> no, I look forward to it. And I, I like now, now I really, really have to keep reading. Cause now, now I'm looking forward to the college radio story so coming soon goon number four <laughs> goon number four page 99 so i'm gonna i'm going to have that ready for me once we're done here um so yeah this has been like just reading reading your obviously uh gangsterland then going on to the low desert has been uh kind of a reawakening for me because again like i've struggled reading mm -hmm. and you know i i somehow got through my undergrad not having to read all that much and I, I was a history major like for god's what? sake what like, yeah like okay. I, I somehow so made upsetting. it i somehow made it uh but as a as a full professor at the university of california i am stunned and shocked and disappointed but also <laughs> now that you sir are a professor at college of the desert i'm even more concerned <laughs> no okay look if if it's like my textbooks for work 
I'll read it begrudgingly, <laughs> but I'll read it. Um, but out of leisure, out right. of leisure, it's always been a struggle. Like it's always like at least you know through my adulthood. Um, right. During high school, like I read all of the Harry Potter books. I did all of that stuff. Read a bunch of stuff, and then it just kind of went downhill from there. But well, there's always something else to do. Like you know the the thing about um, about reading for me is that it's always been a, a tremendous comfort to me. You know, I, I spend some portion of every single day reading. And sometimes it's just that I read, you know, the newspaper cover to cover every single morning. Um, you know, that's like, I don't feel normal unless I read the actual physical print newspaper every single morning. Um, but I read something every day. And it, I mean, it keeps my mind sharp, of course. But it's also, um, you know, it's also the vehicle of empathy. You know, like the way that we learn about other people that we don't have any contact with, particularly in a time, say, for instance, if you're living in your house for a year and don't have contact with anybody, where you can <laughs> begin to imagine other people's lives and build that bridge toward empathy. And so it always upsets me when I hear someone say, oh, I don't like to read, um, because what that says to me is I don't have an interest in other people. I don't have an interest in knowing things beyond my own circle of life. Um, but also, you know, for me, reading was not something that came easily to me. You know, I was I was profoundly dyslexic as a child. I didn't learn to read until um, until I was 10 or 11. And so my relationship with words is perhaps a more profound one in that regard because I struggled so long to have one. And so my ability to read and my desire to read um, exists beyond entertainment. You know, it's just, it's, it's a fundamental part of me. It's also why I don't mind foreign films. I can watch the, I can watch a foreign film and be perfectly happy to read along. And that's actually what I was going to bring up next too, is you have mentioned several times in the past that you're profoundly dyslexic. And that was something that was difficult to you. And I found this thread on Twitter that really kind of sat with me. There was obviously the point in you being dyslexic and how a doctor had told you that you had no shot. You had mm -hmm. no shot. Yep. And in that same thread, you also talked about imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. People people need to realize that a huge amount of the American population is, in fact, dyslexic. And they, some people imagine that it's about 20%. And that's huge. You know mm -hmm. at least a few people that are, in fact, dyslexic. Right. You getting past this and then also trying to get past this imposter syndrome. Like how how did that go for you? Well, you know, I thought I was stupid. I thought I was dumb when I was a kid. And, you know, when you can't read and your friends are passing you by when you're a child, that sort of reinforces that notion that you're dumb, you know, and then your friends are telling you that you're dumb because you can't read. And, you know, intellectually as a 50 year old man, I just know that like, well, of course, like that's what kids do, but it doesn't mean it's not embedded somewhere in, you know, in my DNA, like, oh, I was dumb when I was a little kid, when of course it was a, a disability. Um, but what has happened or what what did happen for a long time is I tried to prove it. I tried to prove that I was dumb, <laughs> you know? And what I mean by that is, you know, it was never cool to, to be reading books when I could be playing sports, you know, or 
um, playing video games or whatever, you know, doing anything else or drinking, partying, being, being that guy, you know, because it's easy for me to be that guy, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, because I am perfectly capable of being a moron, just like anybody else. <laughs> and, um, and as a unique talent, you know, I'm also good at it. Um, but it, you know, there, there's a duality of, of in anybody. And, Part of it was, you know, it was cool to be dumb. It was not cool to be smart. And so I fought without for a, a long portion of my of my childhood and my teenage years and really into my early 20s, I suspect, where, you know, I just did stupid shit, you know, and I don't really know why I did stupid shit. It wasn't who I was. And and maybe it was meeting, um, you know, the woman that would become my wife um, and, and starting to date her. And finally, being with somebody who who shared an affinity for the things that I shared an affinity for, and I, and what I mean by that is not Keystone, you know, <laughs> like who was into books and reading, and movies and art and all the things that I did not share with any variety of sorority girls I was dating in college, you know, um, or someone that I met at a bar called Splash, like that, that just wasn't the people I was spending my time with right and so i think when you when you fall in love with a person who brings out the best parts of you uh of course it changes you and it changes the way you look at yourself and the decisions that you've made and the choices that you're going to make going forward um and to be reminded you know that you're not a compendium of your worst traits um all those things you know it took me a long time to figure that all that stuff out. And of course, you know, I had a, I had a fucked up childhood, you know, with a crazy mom and an absent father and, you know, abusive people in my life and all that terrible stuff that you can read essays about online um, <laughs> written by me. Um, but sort of getting beyond this notion that I was dumb, getting beyond this notion that I was, um, you know, that I was not fit for this career that I wanted, all those things was really hard to do. But once I really became successful, which was about 20 years ago, um, I've tried my best to, to not be that person. I've also, I've tried to help everyone that I can. Uh, I've tried to lift people up who have the same issues that I had um, and try to be a, a great advocate for, um, for the art, for the written word, which is probably why I'm a professor and why I have my own graduate school and all those things. Um, <laughs> But, you know, that's, it, it's a weird thing because in this profession as a writer, um, these are the things that make you an empathetic writer and an empathetic teacher. You don't, you don't get to have these conversations necessarily with the TV repairman, but he probably has the same issues too, you know, but whether or not that impacts his or her life, who knows? We, we should have a show where we're interviewing TV repairmen and finding out like, when you started fixing flat screens, did that help your imposter syndrome? <laughs> <laughs> no, and I, I think you know, I think it's important to talk about imposter syndrome because I've, I've that's something that I've had to deal with too. Like getting praise at work is like the weirdest thing for me. Like it's really weird because I know I'm doing my job, but it just feels like another day at the office. And whenever people are like, "Oh yeah, good job, Alex," I'm like, "I don't know if I deserve this," right? Like it's it's weird. <laughs> like it's and it's just maybe me feeling like maybe I'm not doing enough or I don't know what it is, but 
it's something that I've struggled with, but also have started working past, right? Right. Like, you have to accept that, you know, maybe you do do a good job. Yeah, I mean, the the nice thing in the last, oh, 15 years of my career is that I stopped getting bad reviews. <laughs> my first book was was a bad book and I got the reviews that it deserved. And that was hard, but it was true. Um, but in the last 15 years or so, like the reviews have all been really good and the response has all been really good. And I've sold a lot of books and that's been, that's been great, but I'm still surprised when it happens. I, you know, the other day, this was a, a month ago, a month ago today about, um, I was sitting down the, down the hall from where I am right now um, at the kitchen table and eating some oatmeal and my phone buzzed and it was my publicist at my publisher saying, oh my God, Time Magazine just picked your book as one of the best books. And I was like, holy crap. Like, why does Time, Ma like, why does Time Magazine know that I exist? Like, <laughs> I don't want Time Magazine knowing that I exist because like all I could figure was like, oh, they're also going to find out about how I, you know, did the Ponzi scheme or something like <laughs> Time Magazine should not know that I'm here. Right. Um, and then I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. And I was telling my wife, like, oh, my God, Time Magazine picked my book. This is crazy. <laughs> and Wendy was like, well, why wouldn't they? And I was like, I don't know. I, know <laughs> I just like, why should they? Why shouldn't they? Um and, you know, like, I'm genuinely surprised when good things happen, because uh, there's still that little part of me that is waiting for the worst thing. You know, that that thing still is out there, even when I when, even when all the evidence suggests that it's not coming. I get that. I, like, I totally understand. I've, of course, I've never done anything of that magnitude where I'm getting noticed nationally like that. But, you know, even just like projects at work, like it's always weird. And, and look. Time Magazine, and this this is a, a nice little list that you've got going here, nice running list of some of the <laughs> praise you've gotten from the low desert. So you, you did mention Time Best Book of the Month, Publishers Weekly Top 10 New Mysteries and Thrillers, Publishers Weekly Best Book of the Week, USA Today Top 20 Book of the Winter, USA Today Best Book of the Week, Crime Reads Most Anticipated Book of 2021, Crime Reads Best Book of the Month, and The mm -hmm. Week also gave you Author of the week. Author of the week. That was a surprise also. <laughs> I think they missed they missed a big opportunity on the lead for it because it's author of the week, but they don't capitalize the week. You know, I I saw that and I thought the same thing. That's why you and I don't get to edit weekly magazines. I looked at him like that looks like a great opportunity to go ahead and just capitalize a T and the brand it. That's what I'm saying. It's not going to cost you anything. Well, you know the the funny thing about being um, in the week is like that. Like it's again, it's one of those things where it's like what they shouldn't know about me. Like there's no reason that the week should know about me. Like U.S. News and World Report should not know about me. <laughs> but in fact, the week had contacted me towards the end of the Trump presidency. Uh, and interviewed me about how the mob has influenced the way Donald Trump speaks and acts. And uh, I thought that was surprising that they contacted me about that, but not not outside the realm of possibility. Um, but, you know, the, the, the neat thing about any of those accolades um, is that the truth is I've been doing my time, you know. This is my 15th book, and... Um, I've always gotten good press, but for some reason, this book in and of itself 
has garnered a different kind of praise. And I think it's because of the look at the desert itself, the look at Palm Springs and the Coachella Valley, because we're at a period of time where people know more about it because they come here, you know, they come here for Coachella or they come here for stagecoach or whatever. Um, and to have this notion of this place that they view as paradise to, to look one step off of that street where Coachella happens and realize like, Oh, there, you might walk into a bar and meet a defrocked lawyer and a murder clown and some guy with a head in a bag. Like that's the truth. I got news for you listeners. If you're not from the desert, like the weird shit that happens in my book, that's just desert shit, man. Like it, there was a, there was a review uh, that came out last week and they called it and they were like, look, if you don't live in the desert, you don't understand how some of the stuff that, that I taught him writing about, like, it seems weird to you, but it's just weird desert shit. Like the appearance of a clown somewhere it's weird, but it's normal. Or just like any other creepy, strange kind of sketchy experience. Like that's just some weird desert shit, man. <laughs> it just happens. <laughs> and look, pe- people need to realize we're a region that's, a hundred some odd miles away from LA. We're four hours away from Vegas and Phoenix. And it gets to, you know, 115 plus out here. It, there's going to be some weird shit that happens. It's going to be weird. It's, it's going to be, we live in a place that's one broken AC unit away from killing all of us. <laughs> <laughs> it's, and, and, and as I was reading the Royal Californian and you brought in the clown, I'm like, oh my goodness, Todd. Oh my goodness. Cause, because I, I know you enough where whenever we have conversations about clowns, it's not usually a good one, right? No. It's not. And no. <laughs> and I, I read that and I'm like, oh, I wanted to laugh so bad. So, so bad. And then as you described the street and you started talking about the Larson's Justice Center, mm-hmm. you started talking about the Applebee's and the Wiener Schnitzel that's like an A. It felt good because people always talk about Coachella. Mm-hmm. You know the music festival. But they don't. They obviously don't talk about Coachella, the city, or Indio, right? Um, so it was nice to be able to relate to something, and especially something that's getting you know well recognized and and is out there. It's out there and it's it's making its rounds. And to be able to relate to it, of course, aside from the murder and all that, I I can't relate to that. Um, but <laughs> sure, you can. You got to know someone that's been killed. Someone, uh, someone's died near your neighborhood, right? Okay, that's true. That's true. It's just not by my hands. My hands right. are, are not squeaky, by your... squeaky clean. <laughs> yeah, I've never killed anyone either. But, you know, the thing is, is that I've always lived in proximity to bizarre crimes. Um, I mean, m- most of us have. Like, if, if you live in a city, you live in proximity to, to criminal activity. Um, but even just where I live now, so I live in, in Indio and I live in a big gated community on a man-made lake on a golf course. And a couple years ago, um, a few nights before Christmas, one of our neighbors was murdered by her boyfriend and dumped on the golf course behind our house. Oh, um, and this is a person who, you know, she lived four blocks away from me and she worked four blocks away from where I work at UC Riverside. She worked at Palm Desert High School. She'd grown up in the desert at the same time that I'd grown up in the desert. We had lived our lives in concentric circles around one another and, and had never met, even though we lived in, you know, in the same neighborhood. Um, but, you know, that's that's something that I want, that I like to, to think about and to, to talk about and to write about, 
which is this notion that it can't happen to me and it can't happen here and, and all those things. It, it does happen here. It does happen to you, um, some version of you that's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's that's happened to me over and over and over again. When I lived in La Quinta, um, there's a real estate agent. His name is Paul Anton. And he murdered another real estate agent uh, two houses away from us. And he was he lived right on my street. I'd see him every single day because he didn't bring his cans in. It made me crazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm just glad I never said anything to him. But he murdered this woman and then tried to kill himself. But what happened is he put the gun in his mouth to try to blow his own head off. And all he ended up doing was blowing his cheek off. Um, but this is... You know, this is this happens. When I was a kid, the Golden State Killer raped yeah. two girls on my block. Like this happens. These are the things that happen. And, and would you say that's shaped a lot of like what you've been able to write and maybe some inspiration off of that? Well, for sure. I mean, you know, I've always been interested in 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 crime and in death and in violence and murder and all these things. I'm not a violent person myself. And typically when someone says they're not a violent person, they're about to hit you. Um, but, but I'm not a violent person myself. Um, but I am always interested in how people and why people choose to do the things that they do. That's why I stay up till three o'clock in the morning watching, you know, forensic documentaries where it's like a guy kills his wife and you're just like, just get a divorce. Why did you kill your wife? <laughs> Get a divorce. You're going to get caught. Um, so for sure, it shaped all of it. But also, I, I think um, for me, also just writing about place means you end up writing about crime. And I know that you also mentioned in uh, one of the episodes of Literary Disco, you are the youngest of four. You, you come from a very talented family, too. Like you're, I do. Your, your brother, of course, is an author, TV producer. You have a sister who's an artist. You have another sister who's a lawyer. You guys did pretty decently for yourselves. Yeah, and my sister, who's a lawyer, and my sister, who's an artist, wrote three books together um, on art and inspiration. And so every single one of us kids has published books, which is crazy. It's That's insane, but it, it's, it's, insane. It's, <laughs> it's really awesome just to see how much talent comes from one family. And, and I kind of feel that about my wife, uh, Leslie's family. They're all like very artistically and musically inclined. And I'm like, where's all that for me? Like, you guys are selfish ass families. <laughs> then that over this side, you know, I would I would enjoy that. Um, <laughs> but I, I know you mentioned in Literary Disco that one time your, your brother left for college and he left you a box of books. And they yeah, were- so my brother is nine years older than me. And in fact, he published his first book when he was 20 or 19, 19 or 20. Um, so he's like, he's been making books and TV shows since 1980, which is crazy. Cause he's, he's 59 now, but he's been, he's been in the game since honeys was wearing sassoons as Dr. Dre once said. Um, but yeah, he, he left me this giant bag of books and he would refill it every time he'd come home from college. And it was really my entry in like, as soon as I could read, it was my entry into, into reading. So while other kids are reading, you know, The Outsiders or something or, or you know, Choose Your Own Adventures, I was reading Donald Westlake and Elmer Leonard and, you know, John McDonald and Jim Thompson. Like, for me, noir fiction was my YA fiction. 
And I just gobbled that up. So, you know, once I could really read by the time I was 11, I was voracious. I read everything I could get my hands on. But also I was a voracious reader of just like the darkest noir fiction that's ever been written. <laughs> um, you know, like I knew more about Dashiell Hammett than I knew about my dad. I also had a better relationship with him. Um, and like, but that was great because it also got me to think critically about the world. Like when you when when your path to literature is every con that's ever been done to someone in a book, <laughs> you really start to look at the world in a different way. <laughs> and then you start writing about it. Yeah, you start eventually. You start writing about it. Um, and you know, I I see the world in a skewed, slightly fucked up way, which is like I'm always looking at how someone might be getting over on someone else. You know, I, I look at the crimes that could happen. I mean. As you'll find out in the story Goon Number Four, you know I would go into the offices of KCOD where uh, I recorded Open Book and where Alex uh, makes all the shows happen, and I would be in this house that's been turned into a radio station, and I'd walk through it and I think, what a weird place this is. Like if I were if I were going to rob this place, where would I hide during the night? And I know exactly where I'd hide. Or I think like boy, if you wanted to do a scam in this place, you really could. You could do it this way, this way, this way. You could pretend to be a professor. Like all kinds of stuff comes to my mind when I walk through your house. And I'm talking like in two minutes, all this stuff comes to me. Um, but that's just how I think. I'm always I'm always imagining weird scenarios from situations. And, and like sometimes it's not great. Like, you know, Wendy and I will go to Trader Joe's and, you know, someone will cut in front of us. And, and you know, my first response is like the hitman response, like motherfucker, if you do this again, you're going to be shitting in a bag for the rest of your life. And Wendy will be like, I need you just to go get the yogurt. <laughs> <laughs> go get your oatmeal, Todd. I, I don't need the hitman here. I need the normal person here. And so to keep it turned on and off in my head is a little bit of a challenge. <laughs> you, have this very analytical way of thinking and it obviously it's a, a little bit more obscure way of thinking than, than most people, but it's still an analytical. And you did already mentioned a few times yes. that you do work in education. You're a professor. You're the director of the low residency MFA at UCR. I know that that program is mainly online or it has been before the pandemic. And mm -hmm. I, you do have a short stint in person, right? It's, it's, it's very, very short. Yeah, um, 10 days, twice a year. When you're working with students, and especially with such a small group, and everybody's creative process is a little bit different, right? Um, mm -hmm. What is there like a formula that you kind of look at, like just maybe a basic platform on what you're expecting when you're bringing a student in and then what you expect out of them once they finish the program? Um, yes and no. I mean, you know, the program's actually quite large for an MFA program. We have about 100 students, so it's oh. one of the largest MFA programs in the country. Um, and one of the largest low residency programs for sure in the country. Um, you know, I choose all the students and I also sign off on all the theses. So I'm the entry and exit point for every single student that comes into the MFA program. And what I am looking for above all else is talent. And then what we can do to help foster that talent. What, what role I play, what role my other professors play, um, to get these people to achieve their dreams, you know, and there's a lot of weight with that. You know, when, when a student comes into a master's of fine arts program, they're not 20, usually they're close to 35 or 40. And they're making a choice based on 
wanting to have a transformational experience in their life. And I feel like I owe that to them, that if they're going to come and get this degree to do this thing that they want to do, write books, make movies, make television shows, whatever it might be, my job is not just to teach them. My job is to get them through that door and in front of the person that's going to get them to that next level. And so I, you know, I, how, how do I judge the work? It's hard to say, you know, my, my goal with everyone is the same, which is to get you published or produced. And so I, I find myself having a general philosophy above all else, which is we're going to judge you by professional standards. We're not going to judge you by some, some strange pedagogical notion of what a good book is or what a good screenplay is because the pedagogy of screenwriting doesn't matter if you're trying to write, you know, an episode of Bosch or something, you know, like they don't care what you learned in your MFA <laughs> program. They just learn, they just want to know if you can write a, an episode of a streaming show. Um, so, you know, my philosophy is to create well-rounded writers who understand the business and who are prepared to immediately graduate and step into a professional role. And I feel like that's my duty is to prepare them for that creatively, but also prepare them for that emotionally. And so some of the teaching methods that come from that are from examples of my own life, my own career, but also of course, from the lives and the careers of my professors. So I have a philosophy and that's to get people published and produced, but I also don't micromanage my faculty. Um, this I built the program um, in the image that I wanted, but I hand it off to the professors to do their own thing um, and for the students to have agency over what they write. Um, my job is then to make sure that what they write gets in front of the people that can make a difference in their lives. And so like, this kind of brings the question, because again, you say you have a philosophy, and I guess it's like the difference between being objective and subjective, right? Like you're going to have your way of thinking and maybe you're reading something and you're like, maybe it's not good, right? Like, or maybe it's something that doesn't interest you, right? So how, how do you keep it from turning into that? Or like, what did you have to go through your own personal process to kind of separate those two notions? Yeah, I mean, I can read something that doesn't interest me and know whether or not it's successful or not. I mean, I do that. I do that every day. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't have to like something that I'm reading in order to know whether or not it works. Mm. And that's, that's about developing a critical eye. Whether or not I like what a person is writing about is entirely irrelevant to my teaching of it. Uh, what I'm looking for is whether or not it succeeds in what it's trying to do. So, you know, I, my personal preference is I like literary fiction and crime fiction. Like th those are two things that when I'm reading fiction, that's what I read, but I can read a horror novel or I can read a fantasy novel or sci-fi book or whatever, and still tell you whether or not it works and whether or not it's successful. And it might not be of my interest, but it can still entertain me. And that's, you know, that's just from, that's from experience, you know, that, that's from reading everything, reading constantly and, and, and understanding the marketplace on top of everything else. So, you know, the, how to teach someone outside of your own genre means you have to be somewhat well-read, which fortunately I am. Um, but you also have to understand that it's not about the experience that they're in in graduate school. It's about the thing that happens next. So when I'm reading a book, I'm not always reading about it. I'm not always reading and thinking, is this good for the workshop? I'm thinking, is this good for Simon and Schuster? Is this, you know, is this good for Tor? 
uh, or I'm reading a script and I think, well, this person just wrote a script that's going to cost $600 million to shoot. Like this, this is unrealistic. They need to scale this back. They don't understand that every time they say that there's a scene with 700 people in it, or you're moving an entire company across the city and dragging 700 people with you. You know, like I'm trying to teach the students the realities of the business. Um, because I think a lot of times when, particularly when people are writing scripts, they aren't thinking about it as what it really is, which is a, a business plan on top of everything else. Mm. Like you write an ep a spec episode of, um, you know, Modern Family or something, and you have it take place in Hawaii. Well, okay, you just added $17 million to the budget, you, you're whatever it is. Um, and so those are the sorts of realistic conversations that I get to have with the students to get them to understand some of the margins to their work on top of everything else. So before going into the program, like what, what's something that you expect a somebody to know? Starbucks gift card. I expect them to send me a Starbucks gift card, $500. <laughs> I mean, look, that's a good start. That's definitely a good start. And I would not complain. That's probably what I should do when you should, when, when I they, they take think out. it's totally legal to say, send me a Starbucks gift card. If you want to get in, um, it's hard to say talent, you know, talent above all else. It's not a, it's not a program for hobbyists. Someone really has to want to be a professional writer to be in the program. Um, because also like you need to, you need to need it. You can, no one's forcing you to go to graduate school to learn how to write. You can write at home. You can read at home. So you need something else. The, the MFA has to provide a solution to a problem that you're having basically. Um, but the most important thing is, is talent. A sense of humor doesn't hurt either. <laughs> Thick skin, um, a desire to learn. I mean, this is the difference, right, between graduate education, undergraduate education, is that no one goes to graduate school because they're forced to by someone else. You're there because you want to be there. Right. And that, that changes the dynamic of the classroom a great deal when everyone has something that they want. They're not there because their mom said you, you have to go to college. They're there because they've decided they're going to take on $50,000 of student debt to achieve a dream. Um, and so that, that creates a different kind of person, you know, that, that immediately creates a person who knows that they're pretty good. No one, no one applies to an MFA program of creative writing who thinks that they're a crappy writer. At least one would hope not. Right. And, and maybe that's part of that, again, imposter syndrome, right? Like we go back to it right. and, it's good and it's really reassuring about what I do as a professor too because I mean I listen to content so rather than reading it I mean I have to read their scripts and kind of guide them in the right direction right and there's going to be stuff that I'm not completely interested in I mean they right. they probably wouldn't like it if they heard this and they're like oh maybe he didn't like our stuff but that's the reality right we have our <laughs> likes and dislikes but that's not my job that's not right. your job your job is to make sure that they gain the skills to produce something good that's going to work and fit for the target market. Right. I mean, the president of NBC doesn't love every single show that is on NBC. The, the, whoever's in charge of Honda doesn't like to sit in every accord that's ever rolled <laughs> off the lot, you know? It's, it, but they are in the business of creating those things. And so therefore you have to have, um, you have to have a good eye for that stuff. And, that, and I think that's actually the thing that has been successful for me as a professor for all these years. And then as a program director for the last uh, 13 years is that I have a, a, a really good eye for other people's talent. 
Well, that's good. That's always good. And you're definitely in the right place to do it. Now that, you know, I, I don't want to keep you much longer. So I have, I have two things for you. So the first one is because, again, I'm trying to get a little bit more avid with my reading. What are some things, maybe if you give me three recommendations on what I should read. And maybe, you know, again, I, maybe it doesn't have to be too heavy. You know, don't, 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 <laughs> don't, don't put me in a place where I'm just going to completely shut myself down and cry in a corner. Uh, just something that, you know, maybe I could pass the time, a, a page turner for sure. Well, so this is the thing, Alex, is that you need to start reading things that edify what you're already interested in. So like for you, you should go read Moneyball. You should go read The Blind Side. Um, you should go read Liar's Poker. You know, these, and this is all by the same author. That's all Michael Lewis. Um, but if you read Moneyball or The Blind Side, you're immediately going to be interested because it's telling stories about things you already like, baseball and football, and, and looking into the lives of the people that make that sport. I love reading sports books. I'm fascinated by the lives of these people that do a thing that I can't do which is run really fast and throw really hard. Um, so I would read those books um, because you don't, if you don't love to read fiction, don't read fiction, you know, read, read nonfiction, read, read really good journalism or, you know, read a book like Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. Do you, have you ever heard of this book? No, I haven't. Oh, Alex. <laughs> I'm this uncultured, book, I'm sorry. <laughs> Devil in the White City. It's about the 1896 World's Fair in Chicago. And you might say to yourself, well, that sounds pretty goddamn boring. Everything that was ever created in America was created at the 1896 World's Fair in Chicago. But at the same time that this World's Fair was going on, there was a serial killer <laughs> murdering people that were coming to the World's Fair. So you have this history of Chicago being built, this history of American culture being built. And then in the background of it all, actually, it's at the foreground, at the foreground of it all is this serial killer who is preying on the people of Chicago all at the same time and how they all end up intersecting at the 1896 World's Fair in Chicago. It is one of the most remarkable books ever written. Absolutely love it. Or if you want to feel scared every time you go to work, you could read uh, Columbine by Dave Cullen, which is his reported history of the shooting at Columbine. It took him 15 years to write the book. It's an essential piece of American literature. You'll learn more about where we are as a culture than you've ever imagined just by reading that book. I think that's the last thing you want to do is be afraid of where you go to work. But, you know, <laughs> there, there's a reality to it, right? Like that's, that's yeah. kind of the messed up thing is, uh, you know, we have a uh, gun culture here in the United States and whatever side you fall in on that, there is a problem. But it's not just about that. It's also about the media and conspiracy theories. Um, like you're probably too young to remember exactly what it was like when Columbine happened because you're 28, right? Mm -hmm. And Columbine happened in 1999. So that was, you were a kid, you were yeah, a baby, yeah. you were little. But there was all this, all these conspiracy theories came out of Columbine just at the time that the shooting happened. And the media was filled with all these notions about why these two kids had done what they had done. And, you know, the trench coat mafia and all this crazy banana stuff. When in fact, it was just like, there was a, like a burgeoning, 
no, he wasn't emerging. He had he had reached his potential absolute psychopath in Eric Harris, who found a willing accomplice in this sad sack kid, Dylan Klebold, saw him and realized I can make him do what I want him to do. So all this other stuff was like, it's just it's just mythology. Like you probably actually believe that there's a girl who they went to go shoot who said that she believes in God, right? That story, mm. that didn't happen. Like it's it's a fascinating story. That's why you have to go read Columbine by, by Dave Cullen or listen to the audiobook. The audiobook's good too. Um, but start with the sports books. <laughs> get, get to Columbine later. Yeah, go, I, I need to work myself the, up to it. Go read the blind side, but you love baseball. Go read Moneyball first. I'll definitely have to do that. And I'll I'll take your word for it on all of those. And luckily, you know, this is a podcast, so I could always come back to it and be like, well, yeah. what were the books that, that Todd recommended? Yeah. And so here's the last thing I'm going to leave you with. I know you are a fan, and maybe some would say a super fan, of Jane's Addiction. I am, in fact. So here's what I'm going to do. Okay. I'm going to give you three songs. Okay. I'm going to read the lyrics to them. I'm going to expect you to go ahead and finish them for me and tell me what song it is. Okay, I'm prepared. Okay. Here's the first one. She was holding it back. It hurt so bad. Jumping out of my flesh. And I said. She was holding it back. Hurt so bad. Jumped out of my flesh. Here she said. Holding it back. He's singing it. He's singing it in his head. He's trying. He's trying. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> holding it back. is is mountain song. It, it is. Um. Uh, something about Mrs. Smith. Uh, the the next do you, do you want a hint? Yes. You better. You better. I'm giving you a sign. You better pay. <laughs> uh, the, the physical, the physical paper. Better, I don't know. You better cash in. Oh, you better cash in. Cash in now, baby. Cash in. Cash in now, baby. Cash in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yep, and, and, and there, you, you got it. You finally got it. Jesus. <laughs> okay, the next one, the next one. I walk right through the door. Walk right through the door. Hey, all right. I walk right through the door, through the door. What's the next line? Hey, all right. Hey, all right. Uh, well, it's been caught stealing. Mm-hmm. I walk right through the door. Walk right through the door. Hey, all right. Hey, all right. Uh, if I if I <laughs> if I get by if I get by <laughs> isn't there some barking <laughs> if I get by it's mine mine all mine mine all mine hey <laughs> <laughs> and I'm gonna give you okay I'm gonna give you this one and this one when I read this one, I'm like, oh, I'm so messed up. So I'm going to give you this one. Okay. Here we go now. Here we go. <laughs> that one from Stop from uh, I, I don't know. It, I, don't, I don't think it's one of their more popular songs, but it it's just literally seven words. The whole song, seven words. Oh, that's Ocean Size. Almost. Almost. No? What was it? Up the beach. Oh, up the beach. I'm sorry. Up the beach. I meant up the beach. Up the beach. So, well, you, said, you said ocean. You were close. You were close. 
I'll give so, you bounty points. So, you know, I'm in the stop video. Oh, yes. So that's that's exactly why <laughs> I wanted to bring this up because you were in fact in that video and I remember you sharing like screenshots from the video and it'd be like you in the background and all yes. that good stuff. Yeah. I'm in the stop video. I'm also I provided a bunch of the photos for their box set and for um for their website from concerts over the years. Um so in the video for stop so the stop was shot on top of Mount Baldy in 1990 at a concert at the Mountain Preserve that was a secret show that they bust you up there in school buses. And I was working at a record store. I was working at the Warehouse Records in Woodland Hills at the time. And uh, this guy I knew came in and was like, hey, man, you go to all the shows, don't you? And I was like, yeah. He's like, hey, there's a secret show. Call this number, you get to go. And so me and my, my best friend, Jim, also from the Coachella Valley, Jim Cottrell, um, we, uh, we got to go. And so I'm standing on the stage during the video. And so there's a moment where Perry and Dave Navarro are singing to one another. And you can see me standing in the background wearing a Stussy mock turtle. It was 1990 in all its glory. But now there's all sorts of um, video on YouTube of the full concert itself. Um, and you can just see me and and Jim all over it where it was it was a thing. You know, the, the funny thing is, I thought Jane's Addiction would play a larger role in my life, but they stopped making music that I liked pretty much after <laughs> Ritual Delo Habitual. Um, but I like the old stuff, you know, the uh, the first three records I really I really liked. Um, but I just saw this documentary two nights ago called Kid 90 um, about Soleil Moon Fry growing up in the valley in the 1990s. And it looked like every drunken experience that I'd ever had, because if you <laughs> live in the San Fernando Valley in the 90s, in the early 90s, it's just like a bunch of parties on bad carpeted floors with bong water in Woodland Hills and Canoga Park. And then some guy who's in House of Pain shows up. And you're like, oh, there's DJ Lethal. That's weird. Um, but apparently Soleil Moon Fry and Perry Farrell were friends, which I did not know. And so Perry's in this documentary. And Perry now looks like my Nana. I don't know what happened, <laughs> but he's had a series of, of surgeries that have left him smooth-faced and looking a lot like my Nana. It's a very strange <laughs> thing. And, and, and you know, it, you just turned 50. You actually just turned 50. And, and you look great. Thank you. You, you, you look great. great. And, and you know what? For, for crime years, you're, <laughs> you're, you're old. You're really old. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to stay as young as possible. So right now, listeners, I'm wearing a T-shirt with a cassette tape on it um, <laughs> in, a, in a room filled with sports memorabilia and, and books and music. You know, the thing that I have found about turning 50, so I turned 50 in January, is uh, I still feel in my head like I'm 17 years old. And, and maybe that's a, a good way of, of looking at life is like, still look at it as though you have 70 years left to live, <laughs> but you're less likely to drink a 40 of anything. <laughs> you would feel really bad afterwards. Oh my God. The, the notion of drinking 40 ounces of anything, anything is, is very challenging, but I never dreamed that I would turn 50 and weed would be legal. Like this is, it's really changed a lot of my life. What a time to be alive. <laughs> what a time to be 50. <laughs> No, Todd, I appreciate you so much. I mean, just the conversations that we've had, although many of them brief, the lead up to 
doing this podcast. We had a lot, uh, quite a few back and forths, and it's always been really positive. And I think for me, just ramping things up and having expectations has been good because now it's like, okay, I'm forced to do this. I want to do to this. Now. You're I, in it. I want to do this. I'm forced <laughs> to do this. Let's go. And I Here thought we it was, go. <laughs> <laughs> and that was that was uh, uh, again uh, up the beach, you guys up the beach uh, by uh, Jane's addiction, and. Having you as the first guest was, you know, obviously very, very fitting because, again, like you, you helped me kind of ramp this up. And and I showed you, you know, the show outline, the logo, all that stuff. So I appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me and just have, you know, these candid conversations. And I mean, we talked about your books, talked about a little bit about your background and, and your work outside of just writing, you know, actually leading the way for the next authors, screenwriters, poets. All that good stuff, which, you know, again, I'm I'm very, very appreciative of uh, this uh, friendship that we've been able to have, even though you're like twice my age. Well, how dare you? You're I'm not 56. What the fuck? <laughs> I mean, look, it's it's just a nice little quip that I had to throw in there. Just just for shits and giggles. Hey, here's the thing, Alex, is like I've been making podcasts since 2012. Literary Disco has been on the air every two weeks since 2012. And so if there's one thing I can impart to you, take more vacations than we have. <laughs> and, and you know what? It's it's really great too, because I, I don't think any of the listeners can complain about, you know, you guys taking no vacations because you guys always put out banger after banger. Every two weeks for since Obama was in office. <laughs> it, it's been it's been great. And like I mentioned before, if, if people haven't listened to Literary Disco and maybe you want to get into reading, and you're not quite there yet, listen to it. It's it's very lighthearted, and it gives you, like, I just listened to the one you guys did on uh, Jurassic Park. Oh, that was a good one. Yeah. That, that was very much a good one, and <laughs> this goes back to what you said earlier, like, does it work or not? Do you right. like it or not? And there were things that you guys liked, didn't like, there were, but it worked. You guys enjoyed it. It was a page turner. Yeah. And listen to the podcast. I recommend it. You could find it anywhere. I listen to it on Spotify. And Todd, Plug yourself, the low desert, everything. Tell us, where can we find you? Where can we buy? You can find me anywhere. Look deep into your heart and you will find Todd Goldberg sitting there. That's where I live, <laughs> listeners. I am right there in your soul. So you can get the low desert anywhere books are sold, online, in person. Um, if I were you, you being listener out there, you can read the low desert without reading anything else of mine. But if you really want the full experience, you should read Gangsterland and Gangster Nation and then read The Low Desert. And then after you do that, then there's 12 other books you can read, but they're not as good, quite frankly. <laughs> well, now we and know. Hey, this, now this is going to be a good show. You're, uh, you're, you're, you're going to have fun doing this job. I'm glad I was the first one. Got all the swearing out early. <laughs> good to start with a Jew. That's always nice. <laughs> no one can say anything bad about you now. <laughs> It, you're gonna do great I'm, i was proud to be here listeners check back in every episode he's gonna do some great stuff no oh, thank you so much todd and again i appreciate you i appreciate everything you do and we'll, we'll have to bring you on again maybe episode 50 or 100 something something special I'm just prepared. to commemorate this special oh, uh, day by episode 100 i'll be 65 years old what would that be a good nine episodes <laughs> a, a year yeah nine episodes. Like that. Okay. I think I think that would be good. So so right. we'll, we'll write the date. You know uh, what what year is it? Uh, so sometime twenty thirty six. Uh, 
Perfect. I'll meet you. I'll, I'll meet you on the on the melting polar ice cap in 2036. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Well, thank you so much, Todd. And hopefully, you know, we get to uh, hang out uh, after we're all nice and vaccinated. Soon. 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 Almost there. Well, that brings us to the end of episode number one of Candidly Human. I hope you guys enjoyed this as much as I enjoyed recording it and hopefully as much as uh, Todd enjoyed being on here. Make sure you check out Candidly Human on candidlyhuman.com. You can find all of the platforms that we're on. That includes Spotify, iHeart, Google Podcasts. We have so many. It's, it's awesome. So make sure you go ahead and check out the website and follow all of the social media accounts. On Facebook, just look up Candidly Human. And on Twitter and Instagram, it is Candidly Human US. So make sure you go ahead and follow on all of those. And make sure you follow me. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and even on Twitch, The Real Satarain. I would appreciate every follow, every share, every retweet, whatever you do. Any support, all support is much appreciated. So make sure you guys tune in next time. I'm Alex Atarain, and this was Candidly Human. Thank you.